Welcome to The Improver, the podcast that explores ideas in healthcare improvement and participatory change, hosted by Dr. Naeem Ahmed and Lara Mott. Hello and welcome to The Improver podcast. I'm Dr. Naeem Ahmed, clinical lead and co-founder of ImproveWell. And I'm Lara Mott, CEO and co-founder of ImproveWell. And today we are really excited to be be joined by Hassan Chowdhury. Hassan, hello. Hey guys, how are you? We're good, thank you. We are good, we are good. Uh, and, And just a bit about Hassan. Hassan promotes the UK digital health sector abroad at Healthcare UK, which is a joint initiative of the Department of Health and Social Care, NHS England, and the Department for International Trade. He's part of the commercial team at Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children, a member of HIMSS Innovation Community, the PM Society, the Institute for Engineering and Technology Healthcare Sector Executive Committee, and holds an honorary research post at Imperial College London for his work in data science. We are very privileged and honored to be joined by you, Hassan. Thank you. A real pleasure and honor to be here with you guys. Hassan, so as you know, as part of the Improver podcast, we are really excited to bring to our listeners um, people who are the forefront of um, healthcare technology, which uh, you so obviously are. And we know that you've uh, been doing a lot of work with Healthcare UK. And we just wondered if you could just open with, you know, what you've been doing there, what you're excited about um, and uh, what, what, what you're really looking forward to. Thanks so much, Naeem. I, I, I've got this story that I tell people that when I was a founder, I didn't use any of the help that you could get from the government. I didn't go for Innovate UK, didn't do SBRI, didn't use the HSN network, like a complete lone wolf is what it feels (laughs) like these days in digital health. Um, And we bootstrapped. We didn't have any venture capital, no nothing at all, right? Friends and family got all the way to the end, had a trade sale. And then everyone tells me, but why didn't you do some private equity? And why didn't you use the HSN network? So now I'm the guy doing all of those things telling all the companies that want to come into the UK, this is what the landscape is. This is what HDI UK is. This is Francis Crick. This is Alan Turing. I'm like a show guide explaining to everybody what to do. So I worked with Office of Life Science to make the global sales pitch for digital health and data. So we could explain why you should come to the UK and set up. Increasingly important because of Brexit. And I'm also the person that helps the UK health sector export, whether that's the NHS, whether that's academia or whether that's digital health firms, startup scale-ups. Um, so for example, before COVID, I, I went on a trade mission. I led that to Saudi Arabia and I took Great Ormond Street and I took Moorfields and I took Imperial and a bunch of startups. So in a nutshell, what I do at Healthcare UK, I'm, I'm a matchmaker. I'm trying to build profit propositions and offers so people can see the value of working together. And I'm trying to make us stop making those same mistakes over and over that we've done in healthcare. So the big offer we make to the rest of the world is look at what we've done wrong, work with us, we'll help you avoid them and capture the future together. And I think that's what's really exciting about it. And um, I mean, we know firsthand, Laura and I, about the amazing support that you, you know, you provide startups. I think your description of them being a, of yourself being a a guide in this uh, vast um 
kind of ecosystem that we have here and how easy it is for you to get overwhelmed. I think one of the things, I don't know, Lara, what you think, but there's so many different offerings now um, yeah. and where to go for help. I don't know, Lara, how you found it. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because where do you start? And I remember, um, uh, Hassan, you know our story quite well. Um, this originated with Naeem's uh, idea and we were very lucky to be on the first cohort of the Digital Health London Accelerator. So uh, when, when we co-founded the company, um, it, was, it was, I suppose, easy for me because I had this 12-month program with the Digital Health London Accelerator, which gave me the network and the meetings and a bit of structure. Because on day one, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and, uh, and obviously, I had naive support being entrenched in the NHS. We knew what problem it was we were trying to solve. But without that accelerator, I actually don't know where I would have started. So what is the starting point for people? You know, you work obviously with the range of companies across the spectrum now. We can touch on the first 100 a little bit as well. But if someone came to you with, you know, I've got this idea and I've got this concept and I need to build an MVP, what advice would you give people from the beginning? Because that accelerator for me really helped guide in the first instance. I've got lots of time for the Digital Health London crowd. They're, they're really cool. And, and I think they have done a fantastic job. Five years, they just had their birthday recently, yeah. didn't they? Uh, so the first thing I would say to people, and this is true of all business, is that before you scale, you have to, you've got to get your hands dirty. You've got to know what that problem is and live it. You know, sit there in the dirt. And only then, when you feel that problem and understand it, can you scale mm. it. And in healthcare, that's multifaceted. You know, I've seen people in healthcare, and forgive me, I'm not naming any names here, but they only see their part of it. You know, whether you're a nurse or a doctor, whether you're non-clinical, we all have our bits of healthcare that we see and we touch. So you've got to make sure that you, you see the workflow the whole way through, and you see where the touch points and the pain points are. And this is a problem that we find in healthcare, the person who pays, isn't necessarily the user mm. and isn't necessarily the beneficiary. So only when you're really down at that level, the weeds, will you know the problem. And then when you've got it right, then you can solve it. And that's why I insist, I need to see, I need to see co-creation. I need to see that you've done it the right way. And then I'm looking for standards, which um, I'm lucky I'm at the IUT. And for us, engineering standards is key. Uh, I'm also looking for evidence. Uh, which is part of my background anyway, how can you make sure that you validated it, you've proved it in the real world? But the first thing has to be, have you fallen in love with the problem? Yeah. But sometimes I guess um, the problem may feel like the most important to you. And I guess that's where you're, you're saying that they need to have some real world evidence because it might not be actually a problem that is... A burning issue that needs solving from the from the NHS. Um, how that that part I think is quite important in terms of how have you seen organisations um, provide that real world evidence? Because the 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 truth is that if it's innovation, it's, it might not be there, you know. Uh, and you're kind of sometimes building a plane as you're flying it. So how, how do you how do you square those things? I, I like the question. Um, I know that there are people all over the healthcare system that will agree that there's a problem, but they won't agree on the solution. 
So you can't just focus on, is this a problem? You also have to ask, would somebody pay for the solution, right? And the way you ask that question shouldn't be in a blasé manner, because people will say, yeah, sure, I'll pay for it. But they don't mean it, because they've got no budgetary responsibility and they've never done it before. So over and over, your skill and ability to elicit those questions and work out from people what the real problems are, that's the validation that you have to get into your MVP. The reason why real world evidence is important is for a very technical issue that I, I, I'll try not to bore anyone to death with, but it's because we have this principle of efficacy. So something has to be in ideal conditions. Clinical trials are a good example. How do you know that translates into the messiness of the real world? That's what the real world evidence is for. Can you bridge the efficacy to effectiveness gap? And that's why real world evidence is important. It validates your claims. It means that you're able to do this, that you claim you can do, even though you're working in a district general hospital in the Southwest, right? That's what you want to do in a, in a football analogy. Have you done it on a Tuesday night in Stoke? You've got to prove that you can do it. Don't make the claim. I agree with that. It's just very daunting, isn't it? I take myself back five years and um, it's a tall mountain to climb. You're the healthcare specialist at DIT. Do you have a view on how hard it is to innovate in the NHS versus other sectors? Is there ever any kind of cross-fertilisation with other sectors? Because sometimes people approach me, friends, family, investors, whoever it might be, and say, you've picked the hardest customer. Why on earth would you try? You know, there's no money in the NHS. They can't make decisions. It's full of inefficiencies. Whereas, you know, Naeem and I are obviously very passionate about healthcare for probably similar and, and different reasons. What's your view on, is this the hardest sector to innovate in? Maybe that's my question. Uh, Lara, an amazingly difficult question to answer. So thank you. Um, I'm going to begin by saying I love the NHS, right? Having worked in the NHS and in health and social care broadly, there's a really big but here in this conversation. Innovation happens despite the NHS, amazing people within the NHS trying to do the good things, even though it isn't built for it, even though the system makes it difficult. When COVID happened, there was some innovation that took place. And I remember someone joking, saying, well, it's because all the blockers went home, right? It's the people that were blocking it. And so it's not just a structure, and it's not just a mentality, not just a culture, but there's some people who are just so risk averse. Yeah. And they're risk averse because their target sets are just so, they're so dominant in their minds that all they've got to do is get their performance to a certain level. And they don't care about anything else. They don't care about innovation. They just need to survive to the next financial year, to the next quarter. And, and that's antithetical to the idea of innovation. Uh, you know, we can talk about DARPA and the Island Bridge. Can you move a completely different team out there somewhere far away in their own culture to innovate and then bring that into the NHS. We can try. And I think there's some great examples. CW Plus is a very good example. But what I'd really like to focus on is that innovation happens despite the NHS. So we now need to find ways to remove those barriers. And uh, so, for example, uh, Professor Tony Young, the NHS Clinical Entrepreneur Program, trying to help those people lift themselves up. That's one way. But I do think that the NHS does very badly at recognizing good innovation when it's coming to it. And that's one of the reasons why we formed uh, Tech for CV19, which became All for Health and Care. 
So I think that that was an important point about um, COVID being the really, really unfortunate catalyst, probably the wrong word, but, you know, force, real unfortunate force for change in terms of digitization. You you set up a tech for CV19. Um, but what it did show us is that change is possible, right? So you saw, you know, even in my own practice, seeing, you know, p- being people to be able to, um report away from hospitals you were able to see people working remotely and and doing mdts multi for those that don't know multidisciplinary meetings uh having been able to do those so the 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 potential is very much there right and we did see amazing pockets of that happening and we we obviously hope that some of that good and positive change can persist and i'm sure it will do. So what what other good things did you see, I guess, with tech for, um, for CV19 that you would like to, to see continuing um, in the NHS? Uh, and what was it that had made people, was it just the fact that it was a national crisis that we needed to, to move? What was the other things that made it um, such a force for change? Well, I think the credit goes to a few other people. Um, So James Norman, who's CIO at Dell, um, he he had a WhatsApp group full of people and they were all making that same point. Um, Professor Rachel Dunscombe, um, Nicola Hayward-Alexander and others who were around at that time were all saying, we need to gather this. So we ended up with a Slack channel and a thousand people got onto that Slack channel. And we, we built a little community of people who still have lots of contact together now. And what we found was that there was an atmosphere of we, even if we don't personally gain, we want to help. That really came out. What the government might call the big society stuff really came out there. Even though Techless EV19 changed its name to All for Health and Care and became a much smaller organization, the idea that we can come together to make sure the right technology is put forward is an important one. So we had CIOs like Lisa Emery at the Marsden. And if you've got people who are really influential on the buyer side, as well as the supplier side, you're able to make things happen. That's what I think the real lesson is. When COVID hit, we weren't selfish. We tried to come together. And it felt at times that it was about your connections. And that's not how it should be. It should be based upon how big a problem you're solving. Have you correctly solved it in a way that makes sense? Does that solution fit within the workflow? Do you have the evidence? Do you have the standards? And we're trying to fight back with that now. So you can see NHSX has made a big move with DTAC, the digital technology assessment criteria. But I don't think there's an answer yet. And um, one of the other ways, apart from the tech for CV19, was the first 100 publication, which you got a lot of praise for. We saw all over social media. Um, Tell us a bit about why you helped bring that together uh, and the purpose of it, and what you're hoping to achieve from from, from that publication. Thank you, Naim. Uh, the joke someone made was that they think "Thank you, Hassan Chowdhury" is going to start trending on Twitter. That that that's what they were saying. So this wasn't just me, but my role is very unusual. I'm supposed to be able to advise commercial teams and embassies across the world. So something like 109 countries. Right. And some of those countries have got multiple consulate generals, like China's got four or something. So there's commercial teams sitting there in each of those embassies trying to win deals for British companies. 
So DIT Singapore, uh, a lady called Bowser, she said to me very early on in my role, do you know a company that was immersive tech, something to do with surgery, um, and is also interested in Singapore? And at the last one, I thought, well, how, how am I supposed to answer that? I'd have to know that, com- that company well. I'd have to know their export plans, their maturity level, and get to the point where, I, yeah, yeah, of course they want Singapore. I can't answer that for a company unless I know them. So then that taught me, that one question taught me what my job really was, right? I have to be able to build relationships with the supply chain. So I went through the supply chain. You know, I did the visits that you'd expect. You know, I went up to Alderley Park and I went to the different HSNs and went across the country. And I spoke to lots of experts. It's a very small world in digital health, right? Very small. So you ask people who's good and who's rubbish. You know, who is it that screwed Northampton over the other day, right? Who are that, what was the name of that company? So once that's all in my head, I then interviewed 188, I think it was, companies. And I whittled it down to what I call the first 100. And that's because the DIT said to me, you couldn't call it the top 100 because we'll get in trouble. So we call it the first 100. And we put 25 ones to watch. The first 100 were, were picked on the basis that they were um, serious about export at a C-suite level, that they were responsive so there's no point in me getting your opportunity and then three weeks later, we don't hear from you, right? Um, we also needed to make sure that they were credible. So do they have something where they've done a lot of work in the, in the UK and the NHS, or are they perhaps representative of the trajectory that we want? You know, the, the way that we want to see the future, this is what it represents, cloud-based, agile, digital transformation, uh, public, public code, whatever it is, right? And, and when I put that together, some of them were obvious, right? You knew Babylon were gonna make it in, right? You knew RL Datix were gonna make it in because they would relationships with the DIT already. They were already exporting, already working with us, doing a good job abroad. But I wanted to make sure I went to Northern Ireland, went to Wales, went to Scotland, went to the regions. I wanted female founders, I wanted LGBT. I wanted to make sure that I had full representation of what's going on. I wanted those small nuggets of gold, right? And then I managed to put together a hundred really, really good companies into this playbook. And then what's gone on is we've got a microsite all across the world. You see health systems are looking at it, venture capital looking at it, and we're expanding it now, but forever, those who made it into the first hundred will have that designation. Those were the first hundred that we put forward and the others, they'll just be in the playbook, right? And that, that's a good thing to be, but for those first hundred, when we put them forward to the Asian Development Bank, I did a workshop with them. Um, or I, recently with the Health Service Executive for Ireland, um, they had this thing called uh, Shift Left, Stay Left, right? Where they're trying to move all of their care closer to patients, away from hospital, expensive settings. And they went through that hundred with us. And we said, these are the ones we think you should go for. They picked them and did a, a closed pitching session so they could do pilots. There's been a move. I'm trying to move British innovation into real life adoption. And that's what the first hundred is really about. That is a big ambition, which is obviously something that we welcome. And I think it's a good moment to say that Improve World were really delighted to be as part of that first 100. But but there is that other question, which we, we spoke about before we we started recording which is that how do you move and, and it's part of your program to 
for, for adoption? How do you move into and beyond these pilot stages? You know, as in someone said that the NHS is suffering from pilotitis, you know, like there is a lot of pilots and and rightly so in a way because it's the taxpayer's money and they need to to be able to get that right. But if it is right, how do we get beyond that quickly? What's your diagnosis, doctor, in terms of uh, in, t- in terms of that problem? Thank you. I've had it called irritable pilot syndrome as well. <laughs> I think there's a there's a challenge where you need to prove in your savings, and you need to prove that the ROI is available because the NHS is cash strapped. Now, this isn't the same with every other market in the world, but just to focus on the NHS for a second, if you go in and say, we want you to spend to save, the people you're speaking to are not stupid, right? They understand the value of what you're trying to do, but they cannot pull the funds out necessarily to spend to save. So a lot of the time they're saying, can you come in and give me some wins? Give me some quick wins. So because they're under so much pressure, their window of opportunity is much smaller, which is why they're thinking about pilots. So this is why I think a lot of digital projects fail. They're just trying to do the same thing, but with a digital mail, a digital wrapper. You know, you used to send it out in the mail, and now you're just going to ask people to go to a kiosk, right? Is there really much difference between the two? I need you to see that digital transformation is really about upending whatever you were doing because you've now got new capability. And when people think of it like that, their window expands. They're no longer just thinking about this one issue. And the short-termism goes, we've got to take stock, take a deep breath and think, if we want to achieve this long-term goal and use digital the right way, this is the right way to do it. Put in a two-year investment. We'll prove it to you. We'll do a phased deployment, no problems. You can do milestones of your payments, but let's not call it a pilot. Because as soon as we do a pilot with you, then Newcastle will say, well, let's do a pilot with you. And then Glasgow will say the same. And then you're doing one in Dorset. You've done 74 pilots. You've not achieved a single contract. It's not worth it. And then your runway goes. And then what happens? You go to VCs and saying, well, our runway's in trouble and they devalue you. And what does that do? The whole thing starts to fall apart. So if we want innovation to work, we cannot allow startups and scale-ups to fail. We've got to give them a chance to get their test beds and their phased deployment. We've got to think longer term wanted to come on to the topic of data with you Hassan because you are a self-confessed data geek. One of our core values is building evidence-based solutions. We are all about the data. The point about pilots, we don't really call pilots pilots anymore with ImproveWell um, and I guess that's because we've got a five-year track record now. We, we do very much back the kind of land and expand strategy so start small start in a department and then roll out but with our partner organizations we we are focused on that strategy from the start so absolutely start small but we all have to have the intention that that's just to learn what works and what doesn't work for the local context and then apply those learnings to to scale out so I, I wanted to say we're lucky I guess it's not luck it's you know it's I guess five years of of working on that evidence base and the data but specifically on the real world data side of things and we said we were going to come back to this what what is your view on on real world data and and i guess what are the benefits of that for companies at the various stages when i first heard the phrase real world data it was a pharma company telling me this and i put the phone on mute i turned to my 
co-founder said, what the hell is that? We had no idea what that was. And that's because our, the company that we founded together, Health IQ, was about taking NHS data and analyzing it, but not giving the data to, to pharma companies and other corporates so that we would be able to solve certain questions. And they were specifically talking about real world as opposed to clinical trial data. But real world data in, in essence is data that's reflective of routine clinical delivery. What's actually happening? How many bariatric surgeries have we had in Wales, right? It's asking those questions. And if you can't work out the real world data, you won't know the impact of your intervention. Digital health isn't going to have the same level of rigor in its clinical trials that you'd expect drugs and devices to have. You can do clinical trials, you know, Big Health and a few others, Quick Genius have managed to do clinical trials. But where you're going to get the real value in proving the intervention is effective is going to be in real world data. So I made a bet three years ago when I left Health IQ when we'd been acquired, and that, that was a real world evidence startup, to move to digital health because I could see them converging. And that's what I think the future is. If you're a digital health company and you don't have real world evidence, you can't prove the value of interventions. So that's what you need. And that's why real world evidence is critical. So an example that's relevant to improve well, if you come in to an environment and you change everything radically, you're adopted, everyone loves it. How are you gonna prove the value of what you've done? It's pre and post, right? Before it was like this, now it's like this. And someone will argue from a methodology perspective, pre and post isn't that effective. And that's not the gold standard. So you're going to need to know as a digital health company, what would be the model that you're going to use? What are the endpoints that you look for? I think we all need to be better. And we talk about health economics a lot. But health economics is built upon the real world data. You've got to get good with that real world data to prove your value. I mean, I, I think that's a it's, a, it's a challenge for all small businesses because certainly for the businesses that we, or the organizations we work with, Improve Well is not the only thing they're introducing. So I think for organisations that are um, solving slightly different problems that aren't directly correlating to we saved you a million pounds or, you know, we, we radically improved this particular outcome for this particular disease indication, it can be quite challenging. So we often focus on KPIs, I guess, what baseline metrics do you have at the moment when you introduced us and then you know what what comes out of it so it, it's very much about data because then you're not wearing the rose tinted glasses and relying on someone to say well we love that product and it was great and it's just anecdotal it's trying to find a way to sort of objectively assess exactly as you say what was it like before and what was it like after it might not be the gold standard but it it, it can certainly work for a product that isn't necessarily um it doesn't necessarily need to adhere to nice guidelines or or that kind of thing. So, given the the vast variety of of, of companies and pro uh, products in digital health, I think people need to find what works for them. Perhaps I, I completely agree. And, and pre and post is going to be the thing that you do when you've looked at the other models and they don't work yeah. for your intervention. Right? But if people aren't educated on what they have to do in the first place, people are going to choose these inappropriately, and they're going to find that commissioners and clinical teams are going to rip that apart because they're used to looking at this. They're used to looking at evidence arguments. 
uh, it may, may be those seven o'clock in the morning meetings that you get whenever you get the consultants together and saying, let's do an evidence review. So I, I really think that digital companies need to bone up on those and be strong on them. And the future is going to lie with companies with the right evidence and increasingly those with deep tech. You know, you could argue the last 12 years has seen lots of companies which didn't have really good technology, but they managed to get there first, get some scale, get some adoption, get some VC funding. And then they made their exits and they made lots of money. That next wave of companies that are coming are going to be your scientific discoveries, those who are precision medicine, those who are using AI, genuine AI, not AI everywhere, like everyone else seems to say, right? You're going to see those companies coming along. And they're the ones that are going to have to make sure that they're not just using clinical evidence, they're using real world. It's not just what was happening in the lab. It is about the deployment. And that's where I see the future. So you've spoken about the future, I guess, for um, health tech and actually technologies improving the healthcare sector. What would you say are your personal, I guess, ambitions for the next few years? Uh, before we wrap up, it would be interesting to know where you're going to be positioning yourself in terms of all of this. Um, what, what were the things that you've kind of focused on or would like to very much achieve? Um, the, there's a, a phrase, um, master of none, I think is the, is the phrase, right? So I, I've managed, as you, as you gave in my brief intro, to have an academic position. So I'm honorary at Imperial, but I'm also at UCL, at the Global Business School of Health, which is the world's first business school dedicated to healthcare. Having that perspective helps me in one sense. Another is that I'm at Great Ormond Street, so I'm on the NHS side, but I'm also with the National Association of Primary Care. And then I'm also at the government. So you're probably thinking, why is he doing all of those roles? And, and I wanted to have the 360. I wanted to see what was going on because I think the future is a bit uncertain. Is it about trying to find the next monster deal? You know, the big digital health company that's gonna make it. That doesn't interest me. What interests me is making the system more conducive to the adoption of innovation. And that's really what was behind Tech for CV19 and all for health and care. That's what's really behind what I do at the DIT. That is actually the role at the NAPC. How do we get the right digital technology into the ICSs? It's what we do at DRIVE, the Digital Research and Informatics and Virtual Environments Unit at Great Ormond Street. How do we get the right technology and innovation in an area with no patients so that we can use the data and the technology, bring it together and then drip feed it into adoption? I believe that unless you get that bit right, all the way down the chain doesn't work. And my life was really changed by not becoming a doctor. You know, my, the, as you can imagine, culturally, that would have been the big win for me if I was a doctor, right? But I didn't, I didn't make it, sadly. So, so then what I became was someone who was an adjunct, someone who made the clinical process easier. That made it easier for clinicians and physicians. And that's where I see my role. And I'd like to think in a couple of years time, adoption will be easier. More adoption will have been made. Um, I'm lucky at the DIT that I, I get to travel the world. Pre-COVID, I got to travel the world and find out what everyone was talking about. And it was always the same thing. What exactly is the right innovation that we need? What's, the, what's our benchmark? How do we work out what is good innovation from South Africa to the Philippines, to, to Thailand, to Saudi? And I visited them all for the DIT. I visited Finland, I've visited Orlando, and I've gone through all these conversations with them. And I hope I can make some difference there. 
That's a very uh, noble ambition. And you've made, you know, just from your bio and the conversation, you know, and our personal, obviously, uh, friendship with you has has demonstrated that you've made some fantastic inroads in, in into that. We 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 have a, a segment um, in our podcast which we call Small but Mighty, uh, and in this section we ask our guests um, to think about a, a a small but powerful idea really that um, they think could be uh, transformative. And usually this would be. Uh, a staff member in a healthcare organisation using our improve, the Improve Well app to put in a, uh, a great idea which they think can, can change the way we're delivering care for uh, our patients. Um, and what, so just to put you on the spot, really, what would you say your small but mighty idea might be? So I'm going to go against type. Um, I think certain digital technology actually creates more burden for people. It creates burden for clinical, non-clinical teams, but they don't have a way of telling you that it's creating more burden for them. And it hurts them in their daily lives. And then it bleeds out in their interactions, whether it's people sideways of them, to the patients, to the carers. And then the people who procured this technology are all crowing about, hey, great, we've got this technology and it's wonderful. And the staff are actually having a harder life. I think we need something that evaluates the, the perception, the burden created by new technology in a system within a certain time period. So if you're going to implement digital, you've got to make sure you listen to the people to hear from them what their feelings are about that technology. Thank you so much for this, uh, for taking the time to come and talk to us. Um, we uh, appreciate it. Um, you would usually be flying around the world, uh, but <laughs> you uh, um, are now grounded. But that's great for us because then we can have this conversation. So thank you again, Hassan. Genuinely honoured to be here with you guys. I'm glad to have you as part of the first hundred. Hope to take you around the world with me. Oh yes, I'll definitely. Next time, next time it's Thailand, I'll <laughs> yeah. I'll be there for sure. <laughs> The Improver is a production of Improver Limited. Thank you to today's guest, Hassan Chowdhury. To find out more about the Improver solution, visit improver.com. Subscribe to the Improver at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. <laughs>